Long after Ivan Lendl and Mats Wielander have taken their unbearably tedious Connecticut State Championships rivalry back to Greenwich, where it belongs. After Jimmy Connors has run out of energy and Andre Agassi out of peroxide, and after the men and women of tennis have buried the sport in their alphabet political wars, 19-year-old Steffi Graf may still be winning Grand Slams. By then, maybe somebody will care. Welcome to The Body Serve Season 7. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. That was a quote from Sports Illustrated writer Curry Kirkpatrick in 1988 after Steffi Graf had won her historic calendar year Grand Slam. The apathy towards Steffi Graf and her crowning achievement was wild. Shortly after she announced herself as the greatest player in the world, not a year and a half later, Sports writers were bored of her. As you may have imagined by this opening, we didn't really hide it. This episode is about the career of Steffi Graf. We're opening this season like we did our season six with a player profile where we kind of put their career into context, discussing and researching the conditions and the world in which their careers arose. This is such a rich topic for us because we both come at it from very different angles. I didn't really watch the sport when Steffi was playing, so I know her as more of a historical figure. I came into the sport when Monica Seles had just been forced out of it due to the stabbing. Mm. And at that time, my modus operandi as a sport fan, as a, what, 10-year-old sport fan, was to root for the underdog. So I immediately gravitated toward the Spaniards. My first tournament that I watched was the 94 Wimbledon final. Hey, Conchita, a uh, huge Arantxa fan. And so that period between 1994 and 1996 where Steffi and Arantxa, they dominated women's tennis. That's where I came into the fore. So my perspective is totally different from somebody who grew up appreciating Steffi Graf from the start. Because I wasn't one of those people. I came to start appreciating Steffi when she took down the insolent child in the 1999 French Open final, and then as a spectator to Andre Agassi's later career Grand Slams. Many young tennis fans know Steffi only as the woman who Serena was chasing for that historic 22nd and then 23rd Grand Slam title. Because Graf has removed herself from the conversation, because she doesn't do commentary, because she is sparse on the tour... It's allowed a certain erasure of what she accomplished and who she is. That is one part of it. The other more sinister part of it is that once Serena got to Steffi or got close to Steffi and with nobody coming behind her, nobody coming behind her to reach that pinnacle, the goalpost had to be shifted. And so Steffi and her incredible career gets erased in favor of Margaret Court. Because Monica Seles is perhaps the most revered woman in tennis history, there are so many passionate, fervent feelings about Monica and Steffi. And what this episode will not be is is really a deep dive into their rivalry or the dynamics between them. Of course, it, it has to be talked about, but we acknowledge those intense feelings. It's also not going to be a stamp of approval for whichever camp you happen to be in, to say one is better than the other. One of my least favorite bits about being involved in tennis is, as you all probably know by now, the Stan Wars. 
and one of the most intense Stan Wars that you'll find on internet comment sections and message boards on Twitter or what have you is the Monica Steffi rivalry. And what's what's crazy about those two is that so much of the arguments for either one of them is predicated on what ifs based on the time that Monica was pushed out of the sport because of the stabbing. It's truly unique in sport history, in any sport, to have a would-be greatest of all time rivalry interrupted in that way and to have the history of the sport potentially interrupted in that way. It's it's not a, a utile exercise for us because you could make an argument for either one in many different ways under the premise of many different what-ifs and they would be valid to a great degree. And so there's just no way to, to say one way or the other. That's the great tragedy of what happened to Monica Salas. First and foremost, what happened to her personally, emotionally, and physically, and to her career, but also the, the looming question marks over the history of this sport that will just never be answered. Not to bog you down in preamble, but a quick rundown of what we'll be doing. This will be basically chronological we won't cover every single era of Steffi's career uh, with the same vigor, but we're going to look at what she did on the tennis court, examine some of the context about what was happening within the WTA, look at her rise alongside Becker in Germany, alongside Gabriela Sabatini, talk a little bit about what it was like to have a father like she did, and how the way he operated as her coach and manager affected the way she was perceived on tour and by the world. And then, of course, finally, legacy as a leader in tennis and legacy as, you know, one of the very small number of GOAT candidates. And legacy as somebody who perhaps didn't do enough to further the cause of the WTA. You jotted down a few observations as we were doing this research because, uh, you know, as we do this, we learn a lot of gaps in our knowledge, things that may have surprised you. Rattle off a few for us. Relating this to contemporary tennis, I mean, Steffi's only been retired for 21 years, but since that time, Angelique Kerber has won three Grand Slam titles. And we've seen her career and her persona described and talked about as exemplary of this German efficiency, right? This is something that just dogged Steffi throughout her entire career. We talk all the time about how sports reporters and sport writers like to latch on to certain narratives and just run with them. This was there from the start and never left. Oh, they love a trope. What that did as well, though, is it pigeonholed Steffi into a box that she was never really able to emerge from. Because no matter how exemplary her play was on court, no matter how flamboyant her wins may have been, Instead of being celebrated in the mold of the beauty of a Federer, it was the boredom of a graph. It's natural when when an athlete is at the top of their game or coming up the ranks, known to be a great athlete, that they're going to be compared to those who came before, who came up with them, and those who came afterward. That's, That's part of the process. When Steffi came up, she came up at the same time as Gabriela Sabatini. Through the early years, 
this is a comparison that's made a lot. It didn't help Steffi that Sabatini was seen as this great beauty, somebody who possessed an elegance akin to that of a, a budding starlet that Steffi didn't have. We saw that Monica Sellers was written about in that way, kind of, as a, a, well, if tennis doesn't work out, Hollywood is beckoning. Those exact words were written for both Sabatini and Sellers. Steffi has to deal with that comparison. She has to deal with the fact that Boris Becker is a huge superstar by the time she wins her first slam title in 1987. Then she has to deal with the comparisons to Monica Sellers. Throughout her career, it seemed that it was just never enough for Steffi to stand alone on her own prowess and personality. All these other players that Steffi was compared to were celebrated for their extravagance, their celebrity, their ability to enjoy more than just tennis. They were multifaceted. Steffi was positioned as, like we said before, this epitome of German precision and efficiency. And she pushed back against that that she was a machine solely devoted to tennis, saying that she had multiple other interests. She said, quote, it is not amusing to read about how I live only for tennis. I have so many other interests. I train for tennis four hours a day and during a tournament, I practice and play my match. Then that is it. I'd go crazy if I didn't have other things. Only tennis? This is not possible. We learned that she had impeccable taste in music. I mean, the concerts that Steffi Graf went to in the late 80s, I would do very bad things to have been able to experience that. <laughs> she saw Tina Turner, George Michael, Cool and the Gang, Simply Red, Bee Gees, and Stevie Wonder. And Michael Jackson. All before she was 20 years old. This is not somebody who did not have interests out of tennis. This is somebody who was pigeonholed into a certain persona. You hate when I go on too much about stats and accomplishments and stuff like that. But with Graf reading through her achievements, looking through her slam calendar, it's staggering. Like, it's hard to understand because this stuff doesn't really happen that much anymore in tennis. 377 weeks at number one, the record. A record 186 consecutive weeks at number one, which Serena Williams tied recently. 22 Grand Slam singles titles. And this was accomplished in a stretch of only 13 years. She's the only Golden Slam in history, of course. She's also the only player to win a calendar year Grand Slam since the introduction of hardcourt at the U.S. Open in 1978. I, I love that stat. But what does that mean for folks who may not recognize that? What that means is that players previously had won calendar year Grand Slams. But Margaret Court, for example, in the early 70s, played on two surfaces. She played on grass at three majors and clay on one the versatility of graf winning the french open six times winning each grand slam at least four times her game and her speed and her footwork were built to work well on all surfaces so i won't go on oh maybe i'll go on a little bit <laughs> the only player in the open era to win three slams in one year five times she reached 13 consecutive slam finals. It was a stat that we learned when we were recording the Zena Garrison episode. And I remember at the time you stopped us recording and you said, hold, that, that can't be right. That doesn't sound right. And you had to go look it up and you like counted her 
counted them like three different times to make sure. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. So 13 consecutive slam finals, winning nine of them. 1987 Roland Garros to 1990 Wimbledon, the, the streak that Zena Garrison snapped. A lot of this is stuff that's known. Folks are aware of this. But something that was new territory for us and something that we feel doesn't get talked about nearly enough were the two years preceding that calendar year Grand Slam, that Golden Slam. Right. Looking through the mid-80s, 1986, 1987, I started to wonder why don't we talk about these seasons more often? And the reason is that because Steffi had so many incredible seasons, it would get boring. Right? There are other seasons that just overshadow these ones. But 1986, she's 16 for most of the season. She wins eight titles. But by the st- at the start of that season, she had yet to win a title. And she was already number three in the world. The writing was on the wall as to who this woman was going to be. By the end of that year, like you said, she has eight titles. Yeah, so that's important to understand. She was a known quantity in tennis from 1983-84. And with Boris Becker's shocking win at Wimbledon in 85, she's completely overshadowed in Germany. But followers of women's tennis knew that this young woman is going to be something. If you had spoken to German pundits in the early to mid-80s, they likely would have told you that Steffi Graf is the one to watch. The Becker win in 85 came out of nowhere. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, the rock star cult personality that he developed at that time completely outsized Steffi and her prodigious talent. So back to 1986, in finals, in those finals, she beat people like Evert, Navratilova, Zukova, Sabatini. She reaches the quarters at the French, the semis at Wimbledon. So the question at that point is how long could Martina and Chrissy keep her at bay? Martina was the dominant player at that time, but Chrissy was still winning slams. Her last slam was in 86. She regained the number one ranking in 1985. So while Martina was undoubtedly the, the head honcho on the WTA tour at that time, the Navratilova-Evert dual dominance of the tour was still in full effect. In 87, she's still only 17 when the season begins, and this begins just a an absolutely staggering season that I like to compare to something like Rafa Nadal's 2005 as a, an up-and-coming player winning her first slam at Roland Garros like Rafa, going 75-2. and two? I mean, I know that this is true, but I again had to look it up just to make sure I was right. She lost only two times, and they were both in the slam finals to Martina Navratilova. She wins Roland Garros for her first title, beating Martina... She was down 3-5 in the third set in both the semifinal and the final. And look who was there in the semis, Sabatini, who at that time people expected to be Graf's peer and probably would have preferred it. Sabatini was spoken of as a future number one alongside Steffi. They were expected to, to rule the tour together the way Chrissy and Martina did. And something that we kind of gleaned from the research is that there's a sense that folks... On tour, folks who had a vested interest in the the survival and continued growth of the WTA, as well as fans and reporters, probably would have preferred Sabatini to have been the one to take off. 
The the run-up to that first slam title saw her winning six straight titles. She had this dominant run at Miami, beating both Chrissy and Martina. Talk about a, a bellwether for the generation to come. It's so similar to Monica's 1990 season, where she won five straight titles and then won her first slam at Roland Garros. Both of their streaks were ended at Wimbledon. And in August 1987, Steffi takes the number one ranking for the first time, holds it for 186 consecutive weeks, which is the record that has yet to be broken. During this time, this period of dominance, starting really in, in, in full force in 87, and then the complete destruction of the tour in 88, <laughs> there's a narrative that's developing of fear surrounding Steffi. Fear from her fellow players. Lots of folks get on court with her and feel like they have no chance whatsoever. It's not even a matter of putting your best effort in. It's going on court knowing that you absolutely do not have the tools to beat Steffi Graf and her forehand. A shot at that time that was completely revolutionizing the game. She's known for her impeccable quick footwork, but her forehand was a shot that that these women had never seen before. They were already, I consulted the Oxford English Dictionary of Tennis. Written by which should exist. Collins. <laughs> they were already calling her a Fräulein forehand in 1987. And it was just anxiety and fear about playing Steffi Graf and not being embarrassed. Chrissy Everett said at the time, it's as if she's so hungry she'd eat the balls. Like Steffi was there to play. That's it. She did her press obligations, but she was a tennis player first and foremost. Martina, to her credit, never gave in to this. Perhaps it was part of knowing she was the top dog and it was not a good look (laughs) to be showing any sign of fear or weakness with this young person coming up to, to challenge for her spot. But at 29, 30 years old, Martina Navratilova at that time would have been considered on the way out. Both Chrissy and Martina were considered to be on their way out. Little did they know that Martina would be hanging around till 94, Mm -hmm. still making slam finals in 1994. But Martina was not awed by Steffi Graf. Sure, she lost. Their head-to-head was 9-9. and It might be a bit surprising to folks that they played that much and played in such high-stakes matches that much, but that I think is a credit to Martina's, to Martina's incredible competitiveness and talent because also remember martina revolutionized the game with her physicality like her strength training and and exercise regimens were completely new to women's tennis that was the wta that steffi graf found when she arrived in 83 of course she was a very young girl and martina was in the midst of a historic season which you know perhaps will never be beaten aside from Steffi Graf's 1988, but, <laughs> but Martina was dominating the tour. Chrissy Evert, toward the mid-1980s, was not winning slams at such a consistent pace. Mar- I mean, Martina solved that riddle in the early 80s, but they were still very competitive as Chrissy improved in the mid-80s again. Regained number one in 85, but she won her last slam off clay in 1984 at the Australian Open. She does win two more Roland Garros. We saw the rise and fall of child prodigies like Tracy Austin and Andrea Yeager. 
They finished number three and four in 1982 and 83. Tracy Austin won two U.S. Opens. But these two players rose quickly. Their bodies betrayed them. And so we start to see this troubling trend of young players who come up like Chrissy Everett did when she was 16, but unfortunately burning out quickly. And Stuffy Graf, though she's not often talked about in this way, was a child prodigy. You're right. I don't think folks talk about her in that way at all. No, I actually never considered it. I suppose a lot of the child prodigies are looked at as cautionary tales, like Capriati, like Jaeger. But Steffi was a phenom at 15, 16 years old. She is in that category. She just, the rest of her career overshadowed it so much. Also on tour, doing big things at that time, were Hanna Manlikova and Helena Sokova. Pam Shriver was a perennial top 10 player throughout the 80s who featured in one of Steffi's very first iconic matches. We'll get to that later mm-hmm. on. Mandlikova and Sukova were part of that next generation of Navratilovans. You know, the next generation of Czechs who she inspired. And Mandlikova was the only non-Evertilova, as I'm going to call them in shorthand. Mandlikova was the only non-Evertilova to win a slam between 1982 and 86 and finished her career with four. We found a a cute little anecdote in the New York Times from 1985. The stories relayed that around 1984, Navratilova wrote to 14-year-old Steffi, giving her a note after she was forced to withdraw from the Australian Open after tearing tendons in her thumb. In the note, she encouraged her to, quote, take your time, stay in school, don't rush into a game that had already crumbled the growing, fragile bodies of other young women who had struggled too soon for the golden ring. This was Roy Johnson in the New York Times in 1985. This is so great because I've found through reading all these old stories is that Martina saves a lot of her kindness for behind the scenes. She can come off as very gruff and sometimes even cruel publicly. And you see that she campaigned for Monica Seles in the background when she was coming back to the tour. She not just campaigned, but helped her was actually get a- her game back to get back right. on tour. Was actually a great friend to her when she was recovering. And she wrote this note to Steffi Graf. Steffi in 1984 was quoted as saying, I want to be number one in the world, the successor to Martina Navratilova. So this is what it is. This is what Steffi was groomed to do. Martina was on top and Steffi was coming, nipping at her heels. She had the talent. And whereas Jaeger and Austin flamed out due to injury, here came another duel in Graf and Sabatini. And while you may look back at Steffi's career and consider Monica Seles to be the enduring rivalry, maybe it was Arancha, maybe it was Martina Navratilova. In fact, the argument can be made that it really was Gabriela Sabatini for a whole host of reasons. We always hear through periods of Serena Williams' dominance, for example, who is her great rival? This era cannot be that great because she does not have a rival. And here Steffi came up with one. Right. Both players have breakthroughs in 1985. Sabatini from Argentina is talked about as if she's a supermodel, that she'll soon defect from the sport and go into Hollywood. (laughs) Peter Alfano in the New York Times, 1986, wrote, quote, 
Among the women, Miss Graff has been compared to Gabriela Sabatini of Argentina, another teenager who had a breakthrough year in 1985, with her photogenic smile, long, graceful strides, and a slingshot topspin forehand, Miss Sabatini, 15 years old, captured the imagination of tennis fans and the hearts of gawking ball boys the world over. A future number one, tennis observers proclaimed, unless, that is, Hollywood beckoned first. So, for my, to my mind, part of the reason why Graf was written about as the German automation heiress was because these men felt like they couldn't objectify her the way that mm. they could Sabatini. Right, like what what need is there to be talking about how she is at fifteen years old, capturing the imagination of tennis fans and the hearts of gawking ball boys? What they want to say but can't say there is that they themselves as grown men are fawning over this yes. this young girl. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. This was clearly, well, we hope, a sign of the times. You see less of this these days, not completely gone. What was this obsession with athletes uh leaving the sport for Hollywood? being beckoned by Hollywood, that you see this all over sports writing in the 80s and 90s. And I have to wonder if it's gone out of fashion because athletes have proven that you can do both and do many things. So many of today's superstars have a whole host of commercial interests. It's a lot more accessible. Hollywood no longer has that mystique. Mm -hmm. It's no longer a place you have to go to to be a part of. You can be part of it anywhere. I mean, you can be part of Hollywood by having a successful Instagram workout series like Venus Williams. <laughs> you know, It's not just about being dolled up and glammed up for a photo shoot. Mm-hmm. In opposition to the way that Gabby was written about, you see Italian columnists calling Steffi ugly. Another columnist, Cesare Lanza, called her too ambitious, too cruel, like a food processor that chops up everything. This is a professional athlete. How can an athlete be too ambitious to win? And a young teenager. Right, and she's she's not unsportsmanlike. She's not nasty. She's simply winning. She's simply beating everyone. This comment about Steffi being ugly was actually taken up in the German Bundestag, and even the Chancellor of Germany defended her in public as a gorgeous German girl. This was very serious in Germany, this accusation of ugliness. The other thing is that Steffi did not naturally gravitate toward that. She didn't seem to want to be a star. She came off as extremely shy and insular. She allegedly hid in her basement from journalists early on in her career. The Graf family, of course, would often train in Marbella, so she could train without interference from the press. Peter Graf, her father, felt that he made this mistake early on, inviting press to certain practices, and then feeling that he got burned badly afterwards. So they were super insular. But what about her game? This is what makes Steffi Graf, Steffi Graf. Louisa Thomas in Grantland described it better than we can, so I'm just going to highlight a few things that she mentioned. Quote, precise and powerful and well-designed, known for her balance, her agility, and above all, her forehand drive. Her footwork, intricate and efficient. Her serve, a high toss and heavy hammer. Her versatility, her effectiveness on every surface. Her clinical strokes, better than classic. The skidding, slice backhand, the proficient volley, and the forehand that changed the game. She's credited as being one of the first aggressive baseliners in women's tennis. Someone who took the inside-out forehand and turned it into a true weapon. Not just a stroke to set up 
a point, but a stroke to end it, and one that brought her many Grand Slam titles. And with that inside-out forehand, how many women in tennis had a truly great backhand to be able to withstand that repeatedly in a match? So the older guard of players who played a different style simply could not stand up against her power, and some of her peers had trouble with that slice, with her speed, with the forehand, with the first serve. Like, there were so many weapons that could rattle you. I mean, it's not so much the slice, it's the fact that the slice kept her in every point. Right. And her incredible fitness and speed and a relative lack of power from the other end meant you couldn't really hit through Steffi Graf. Now, I don't know that Steffi's slice was the most amazing shot, but it complemented the rest of her game for that time in tennis perfectly. And she could hit over. She learned to hit over that mm. slice and pass people with topspin when she needed to in her career. One of the things that I, I learned about Steffi and her playing career from doing this episode is that she was a lot more versatile than I, than I gave her credit for, from my own recollection. I'm so interested in how a player's dominance is perceived throughout the years, and, and any player's. But Steffi in particular, her dominance in some circles, <laughs> you know, among German tennis writers, was just seen as sparkling. You see this word Zauber, which means clean, germ-free. That'll come into play in a little bit. But even among German tennis writers, there was this fear that she would soon, quote, win herself to death, that there was something joyless about the way that Graf went about her tennis. They had the luxury then of another German star in Boris Becker to then be able to write about Steffi in this way. <laughs> yes. It's like, we. it's fine. We got a bunch of them. Like... <laughs> In 1988, you're writing this stuff when your homegrown talent has produced the greatest season in the history of the sport. So sometimes rather than being celebrated for being simply too good, Steffi is criticized for not providing any entertainment with those easy wins. And sometimes she was even heckled by crowds. 1988, she's on her way to completing this historic Golden Slam, which I guess didn't even have a name yet until she did it. The Olympics were in September after the U.S. Open that year. And Curry Kirkpatrick, who we will mention a few times, just had a few legendary lines during this run. At the U.S. Open, when she's about to clinch it, he writes, quote, You could cut the ennui at Flushing Meadows with a hacksaw. Can you imagine? You know, a player achieving this amazing thing, and people were simply bored. And the woman was only 19 at the time. It's not like she had been around for decades and won't stop winning. She's still, she's so early in her career. There were some sour grapes among Americans, because Graf is seen as this existential threat to a sport that was utterly dominated by American players for a few decades. Of course, there's the Australian hegemony in tennis, but the U.S. and Australia truly dominated women's tennis for many, many years. At the U.S. Open, she was criticized because she didn't have to play Everett or Navratilova in order to win. Garrison beat Martina that year. Chrissy pulled out. But if you look through the entire Golden Slam, you know, she beat Chrissy Everett in the Australian Open final. She beat Navratilova, Madlikova, Sabatini, Shriver... Sabatini again at the Olympics, Zena Garrison. 
She beat everybody who was out there. Two people beat her in 1988. The entire season, she had three losses, two of them to Sabatini, and one to Pam Shriver, who beat her at the year-end championships. The fear about Steffi was uh, among Americans, first of all, that she wasn't American, and an envy that, well, God, I wish she was American. I wish she was ours. Look at the money we can make from her. And the other fear was just that her winning looked too easy and it would run over women's tennis and kill interest in it. Interestingly, we heard none of these arguments when Roger Federer was winning in the mid-2000s. Their dominance is entirely comparable. We find all the different ways to celebrate men and their achievements, and we go to great lengths to undercut the achievements of women when they're winning too much. There's no such thing as winning too much in men's tennis. Just look at the big three right now. Folks can't have them win enough. This comparison with Federer is so interesting to me, so much so that I think you asked me to just lay off for a little while because you didn't see it as clearly as I did. But I, I'm i so interested in the way that Steffi and Roger's genius is compared. Be- because I think being that excellent at a sport is a type of genius. Serena has it. Martina had it. Chrissy had it. Roger has it. And and it doesn't always look the way we want it to. It doesn't always look like Roger, right? Dancing around a tennis court. But with Steffi, it did look simply that graceful, that perfect, that easy. It looked easy. <laughs> and that's a, that's a type of genius. When sports writers were crying, screaming about Roger Federer's 2005, 6, 7, 8, they weren't saying the same things about Steffi in her historic run from 88 to 90, 95 and 96. So many incredible seasons strung together, they just weren't really weeping with joy. The latter seasons were filled with strife off the court. Yes. These first few seasons are the ones where it has more to do with the fear of what she would mean for women's tennis, for the WTA, for perhaps the survival of the sport. I don't know, you could come up with any number of conjectures. But the point here is that women are not allowed the luxury of just having their game speak for themselves. They have to have all the other color brought into it, all the other context. We had David Foster Wallace write how many things about Federer? (laughs) Roger Federer as religious experience. Like... And women's tennis, of course, was no stranger to this type of dominance in the 70s and 80s. Martina Navratilova had just set the record for 11 straight Grand Slam finals. That loss to Steffi at Roland Garros in 87 was the ninth in her 11th. Steffi Graf broke that record just a few years later in 1990 with 13 straight Grand Slam finals. But of course, Martina had just gone 86-1 and in 1983. She had a 74-match win streak in 1984. She had another 58-match win streak in 86 and 87. So these types of records were not foreign in women's tennis. She won six majors in a row. Which is a record that she shares with Margaret Court. Both of them did it in the open era. But like you said, we often find that dominance in women's tennis is seen as annoying, befuddling, boring, and especially an indictment of the entire sport. Especially. 
Because the narrative that's then spun is how weak the tour is, how weak women's tennis is, that one person could dominate so much. And look, the depth of women's tennis was not what it is today. It's this funny thing we do, right? We had these all-time great stars at the top of the game back then that somehow elevate that era, whereas the depth that can see any of the top stars losing the first round of any of these Grand Slam tournaments is an even bigger indictment on women's tennis now. You're like a dog trying to catch his tail, keeping up with the myriad ways that folks undercut women's athletics. We felt it important to note that the backdrop to Steffi's rise as one of, if not the biggest, stars in women's sport at that time is what's going on in Germany at the end of the 1980s. She's becoming a superstar shortly after Boris Becker. Becker had that surprising win at Wimbledon in 1985. He was 17 years old and became the youngest male slam winner in history. And he was, although Steffi had been on the radar in Germany, he became the first superstar in quite a while. They were actually both from the same German state of Baden-Württemberg. Steffi was born in Mannheim, moved to the suburb Brühl, and they grew up only 20 minutes away from each other. Boris was from a small town called Lyman, and their careers obviously followed very different paths, but these were two genuine superstars of West Germany at the time, coming up at the same time, earning an incredible amount of money because West Germany was experiencing this economic miracle, as they called it, in the second half of the 20th century. And you start to see what the the cultural lines that are being drawn between the two. And they were winning at the same time, at the same events. In 1989, Steffi and Boris won both Wimbledon and the US Open at the same event. That talk about an incredible boon for the sport in West Germany at the time. In the late 80s, Boris was being celebrated, but <laughs> the German press is starting to see these cracks, right? They're starting to talk about him as promiscuous, as someone who is possibly lacking in what they called strong German morals. Der Spiegel called him irascible, moody, conceited. They criticized him for smashing rackets, for moving to Monaco to avoid taxes. He was working with Tyriac, who was known to be this brash, domineering figure. And... We've come to learn a lot more about Tyriac <laughs> right. since then. That was a very generous description of him. Yes. But Boris is seen as this sort of good-time guy who parties, who left Germany to not pay high taxes there. And Steffi, on the other hand, as, is written about as being, quote, clean, decent, wonderfully German. She pays her taxes. Listen, this is a direct quote. There is a preoccupation with paying your taxes, and this will rear its ugly head later on in the episode. But Steffi is seen as this hometown girl, an authentic, wholesome, polite young woman who represents Germany well. Like, this is who they wanted. In 1989, Peter Graf, Steffi's father, took a dig at Boris Becker saying that it was important to stick to their roots. Quote, I think we can afford the taxes. Ooh, wow. That is, that is a moment. In, uh, in literature, they would call that foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. 
1987, it was reported that Steffi's sponsorships were already worth around $2.8 million. That was 5.5 million German marks, including the debut of the Steffi Graf collection from Adidas. She's not making as much as Becker, but she's getting there. And we learned that Steffi's image was crafted with great intention, that her father engineered this brand that was aimed directly at the German middle class. She was seen as the German girl next door. He is reaching out to companies who sell products that middle class people can afford. That was very intentional because he knew it would appeal to the German people in general. And this leads directly to what's happening in Germany at the time and how patriotism, uh, well, at first disappeared, but how it evolved in the post-war period. You know I love this stuff, so I'm going to talk about history a little bit here. As we said, at the time of Becker and Graf's rise, Germany is still two countries. West Germany, which was called the Federal Republic of Germany, and East Germany, which was called the German Democratic Republic. In the post-war period, in 1945, the Allied powers meet. They have the Potsdam Agreement. They say, we're going to split Germany into four parts to be governed by the UK, the US, France, and the Soviet Union, the victors of World War II. These fractured German states are eventually merged. Three of the states under Western influence become one country, and the state that was under Soviet influence becomes East Germany. And they have a very, very different post-war period. West Germany experienced this economic miracle after the total devastation of World War II. There was currency reform in the 50s. The Western powers removed their control of the steel and coal industry. And West Germany has this massive population of skilled labor and cheap labor. And eventually, the shortage of goods around the world helped kind of ease the distaste for German goods. West Germany is doing amazing, right? They become one of the world's economic superpowers. So, spoken more succinctly, West Germany is flourishing <laughs> economically, whereas there is less surplus on the eastern side of the wall. Right. In East Germany, they had a planned and mostly state-owned economy under the influence of the Soviet Union. They didn't experience the huge boom that West Germany did. They joined the Warsaw Pact, which was this alliance of Eastern Bloc countries that was formed in reaction to the establishment of NATO in the West. But the Federal Republic of Germany's constitution was always written with the plan that the two countries would eventually merge. In the late 80s, and especially in 1989, you see Eastern Bloc countries falling. The Soviet Union under Gorbachev has this policy of non-interference. Hungary collapses. Poland overthrows the Soviet influence. People are fleeing East Germany through Czechoslovakia and through Austria because the immigration restrictions were severe. It was really difficult to travel outside of East Germany. Meanwhile, stateside, this is where you get that famous line from Ronald Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Yes. So for many, for many post-war years, the West was very fearful of a unified Germany. It was in their interest to keep Germany separate because they feared this country unifying and becoming strong and dominating Europe again. Less than 50 years after Hitler. Right. So by the time we get to the late 1980s, reunification is seen as a good political outcome for really all parties. There's a peaceful dissolution of the East German state, and they became one. And coincidentally, this is also the year when two Germans 
win Wimbledon at the same time. Steffi Graf and Boris Becker. Steffi wins her second, Boris his third. Up until the 1990s, it was unusual to see German flags. Patriotism had been a taboo since the fall of the Nazis, and education in West Germany was targeted, geared toward cautioning against patriotism for fear of instilling a sense of German nationalism. Germans knew better than anyone that liberal democracy can easily slide into fascism through both legal and illegal means. Sounds familiar? Yep. But in 1989, the Nazi government had fallen only 44 years before that. There was such an uneasiness and what Peter Graf called a guilt complex around being proud of German identity that the really... I'm sure tempered the reaction to Graf and Becker's wins, but also posed a lot of questions. And those questions, of course, coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany for the first time in many years, and it forced East and West Germans alike to reckon with what does it mean to be German? What does German identity look like in the new century? Sport is seen as a symbol of pacified patriotism a pride in sports figures that could ideally be free of xenophobia and nationalism. This is from Etienne Francois in the academic journal Inflexion. But one type of patriotism that was particularly strong was a sense of rootedness to one's community. And this is where Steffi Graf was exemplar of that because she had stayed close to home. She didn't flee to Monaco to avoid paying taxes at the time, to her knowledge. And she she was often derided for winning these big events and being on a plane back to Brühl within a couple of hours. That was where she was from, and she didn't give that up. She didn't become, like Becker, this rock and roll superstar who was traversing the globe, high-rolling it all over the place. She embraced a simplicity in her personal life that appealed to Germany and the sense of its newly charted sense of patriotism. 2006 is seen as an inflection point, the year that Germany hosted the World Cup, where people felt finally comfortable, you know, waving German flags and stuff like that. So Grafenbecker may not have seen that level of uh, German pride when they were playing. But this sort of local patriotism, and, you know, it's called patriotism in German, but it's more like local pride. This affinity for authenticity has a long history in Germany when it was the Holy Roman Empire. You know, Germany has been decentralized for so long. It was only unified into one country into the late 1800s, like Italy. But this kind of explains why she is so appealing in Germany at that time. And why, in some ways, she was alienating outside of the country. When perhaps some folks wanted her to go and do the the New York late-night circuit after winning the U.S. Open, (laughs) as is customary of tennis stars, she was on the plane back home. And so this is where this narrative of Steffi Graf not doing enough to build a profile of the WTA, taking the baton from Martina Navratilova, Chrissy Everett, Billie Jean King... And, and taking the tour into the 90s with this huge global superstar, it is thought by some that she dropped the baton. Mm-hmm. Or it was a sense of, is that all there is? You know, you're good at tennis, but what else are you giving us? They're all kind of intertwined, right? Right. 
Of course, her father, Peter, had a large part in the way that she was perceived. He's written about as being an extremely dominant and dominating presence in her life. He handled her finances. He was her management. In some ways, he handled her social life. He was accused of berating officials, reporters. He struggled with addiction. He actually had a very difficult early life. Mm -hmm. It was actually reported that he would collect appearance fees from tournaments in plastic bags. (laughs) Steffi denied knowing about this, but reporters have said he was very visible, basically on the court with carrying around this plastic bag. He had that Aretha Franklin method. (laughs) Where you show up and get that cash before you perform, and you've got that cash on stage. (laughs) Yeah, just for some context, appearance fees were illegal in the WTA at that time. Did you say legal or illegal? Illegal. Not allowed. They were not allowed. They were verboten in Steffi's language. And what happened was there was a whole investigation that was spurred by none other than, do you want to guess? Jan Tyriak. (laughs) the manager and sometimes coach of Boris Becker, her countryman. This is almost impossible to believe. But entirely possible to believe. (laughs) Right. Tyriac filed a a civil suit for the return of a $300,000 appearance fee for a tournament that Steffi withdrew from. And this is what kicked off interest in Peter's finances. Can can you believe... I mean... So we'll get to Peter's imprisonment, but to think of Tyriac as the uh, instigator, as the catalyst to all of these problems that the Graf family experienced in the 90s. Not the cause, of course, but the catalyst. For Steffi, she said in a 1987 profile that, quote, he, her father, he is the one who takes the pressure off me. People do not get angry with me, they get angry with him. That's, that's one way to look at it. Mm. This is so interesting because... To me, this is an admission that my father is problematic. He says embarrassing things. He does things that I may not agree with, but I use him as a shield to to deflect from me. I want to play tennis. I want to concentrate on my career. And I'm using my flamboyant, problematic dad <laughs> to sort of catch a lot of that flack for me. That's so interesting. In 1990, you can make the argument that Peter's troubles really started affecting Graf's career. He's accused of fathering a child with a Playboy model later after appearing on Maury Povich. (laughs) The paternity test proved that he was not the father. That was fake news, that Maury part. (laughs) But it was it was reported that a paternity test showed that he was not. Got it. Mm -hmm. But what's happening here at this time is that Steffi is well and truly becoming a tabloid star. She's tabloid fodder The ways that Peter was able to protect her from and shield her from all this stuff prior, she was unable to avoid being wrapped up in it now as the number one player in the world, one of the top women athletes in the world, and to have her very prominent father going through these tabloid things. It was no longer just about tennis for Steffi by 1990. And around the same time, Three reporters from Der Spiegel in Germany published a book on Steffi's life, what they say under Peter's dictatorial control, accusing him of physical abuse, uh, among many other things. Talked about Peter's home life, what happened between his parents, which was incredibly tragic. And it was seriously invasive and humiliating to the Graf family. And like you said, Steffi's life becomes tabloid fodder 
which must be seen as such an intrusion for someone who is intensely private by nature. This is not the first time that this happens in women's tennis. Billie Jean King having to give a press conference admitting to being a lesbian because she's being sued by a former partner. Martina Navratilova coming up publicly in the 1980s as well. Uh, perhaps this was seen as just par for the course. I don't know. Maybe the listeners can can let us know. We were born in the 80s, but we weren't... Sentient? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I get the sense that the 80s was the birth of this ragtag tabloid stuff where it was a lot more in the open than just blind item kind of stuff you know whereas previously you could you could pay somebody to handle it and you know tab hunter could be gay and because you threw somebody else under the bus he gets to keep his secret those kind of deals can't be made anymore so there's a reckoning with public figures in having to to deal with mess very publicly in the 80s Maybe I'm off with that, I don't know, but that, that's the sense that I get. At any rate, the end of Steffi's first peerless streak from 1987 to 1990, where she is just the runaway train on the WTA, it ends in 1990 and it coincides with Peter Graf's public troubles and the emergence of Monica Sellers. This is not to say that there's a, a correlation between those three things, but more of an observation. And it's worth noting that Some of Steffi's more troublesome periods in her career coincide with troubles that Peter's having in his personal life. When we look back, we often talk about Monica brashly entering the game in 89 and completely taking it over in 1990. And that's true. Mind you, just three years before, Steffi Graf had just taken over the game and transformed it again and shown stuff that had never been shown before. And here is Monica to do the same thing again. The exact same thing. And so looking at this rivalry a little bit more closely, we realize that it was a rivalry unfinished, unfulfilled. They only played 15 times. And you know the record. Everybody knows the record. It's 10 and 5 in favor of Steffi. But there's so much left undone about this. You know, in 1990, we begin to see a, a small slide in Steffi's results. Between 1990 and early 1993, Steffi wins only three majors, which by her incredible standards is not that great. Monica Seles wins eight majors in that stretch and announces herself as the best player in the game. Monica beats Steffi in three major finals in uh, Roland Garros in 1990 and 92 and the Australian Open in 93. But before Monica was tragically removed from the game, they didn't even play that much. They played 10 times, Graf winning 6, Monica winning 4. But Monica's rise coincided with this dip in results for Steffi. And some of that was inflicted by Monica, and some of it wasn't. You're towing a very fine line there, because there's a lot of inferences that can right. be made. Because, so I want to be fair here, because it's easy to say that Monica ran Steffi out of the game. And in many ways, we, you know, we've done a whole episode on Monica... We know that in the early 90s, she asserted herself as the best player in the world. She won eight majors in a stretch of barely, what, three years? She wasn't even 20 years old yet. But Steffi was also not the Steffi of 1988, for example. And some of that be could be because she was faced with people like Sabatini, with Monica, and with Arancha sort of questioning that dominance. 
Well, Arantxa was a little bit later well, on. Well, in the 89 Rolling Girls. Okay, but what are we doing here? What we're doing is complicating this period in both of their careers a little bit. Mm-hmm. What I want to say here is that uh, we we should know by now that rivalries are not linear. That they, they are two participants in any given rivalry. And the trajectory, the direction in which the rivalry ebbs and flows is not one upward trajectory. Folks are going to go on a tier and then like Martina did with Chrissy, she's going to figure stuff out. And what felt inevitable one-sided becomes more equilibrium. Not in the moment, because Martina's winning all those matches. But at the end of it, it's what, 43, 37 or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And you say, wow, that's one of the greatest rivalries of all time. But there were distinct stretches where these women were clobbering each other (laughs) for large stretches. And the fact that they finished with an equal number of majors is simply a miracle. Mm -hmm. But... This is where the absence of Monica due to the stabbing complicates this because we never got to see that. If you want to make the argument that Monica was this huge thorn in Steffi's side and Steffi was just completely hapless during this period. And my God, had it not been for the stabbing, then Monica would have won 32 majors. That doesn't account for Steffi taking an extended offseason, getting a new coach, working on a whole bunch of different things, and for potentially a two-year two, two year period, is able to solve stuff before Monica comes and does the same thing again. That's the context that we're missing from this rivalry historically that does not allow us to make declarative statements about who was better. Because we just will never know. Right. Neither woman got the chance to experience that. So we can only comment on what we saw when they played each other. Monica could sometimes out-hit Graf, or at least return Steffi's power in a way that she probably was not accustomed to. That certainly none of the old guard was able to do. She could withstand Steffi's just impregnable baseline assault, and Monica's mental game was unmatched. And so Monica's emergence poses so many questions. She asked the question of Graf every time. It does not help diplomatic relations between the two fan groups. (laughs) that immediately after Monica is stabbed in the spring of 1993, she had already won the Australian Open that year, Steffi goes on to win the next three majors of that year and completes a Steffi slam by winning the 94 Australian Open. So four in a row, she wins immediately after Monica is forced out of the game. And of course, we don't have to tell you that Monica was assaulted, stabbed by a deranged fan of Steffi Graf, whose sole motivating factor was to return Steffi Graf to the number one ranking. And tragically, he was successful, right? Monica's gone. Steffi wins the next four slams. And this this person got what he wanted. And so you have Monica's emergence asks every question of Graf. It challenges her on every level. And Monica's disappearance from the game asks so many questions about the future of Graf's career and continues to plague it. What if? What would their rivalry have looked like? What would the 90s have looked like? Would Martina Navratilova ever have uttered the words Steffi and the Seven Dwarfs? Which happened when? In the mid-90s. Their slam finals, but for the 1992 Wimbledon final, all went three sets. Highly competitive matches. It wasn't one-way traffic. 
I think this is this is where the argument kind of disintegrates that either one of them was that much better than the other. Because their matches were all very close. To complicate the whole relationship, Monica Seles publicly criticized Steffi a few times. In 1993, when Monica was in the hospital in Hamburg after the stabbing, Steffi came to visit her, and you know, both women said they had a really moving, important meeting together in that hospital room in the short time that Monica stayed there. But in her first memoir, Monica expressed a lot of disappointment in Steffi that she allegedly voted against freezing Monica's number one ranking and was surprised after they had such a meaningful visit at the hospital. Monica actually made an appearance, a very rare appearance, at the 1993 U.S. Open as an observer, and she spoke to reporters and said that Steffi hadn't reached out at all after that first visit, and Steffi responded and said that I had actually reached out many times and found it impossible to get in touch, and Monica's agency, IMG, confirmed that it was very difficult to get in touch with Monica at that time. And we know, you know, what she was going through and how how elusive she was. She was ignoring her management, everybody. Even before that time, she was elusive to a lot of folks. And this is a type of stuff that I can only imagine what, a, what it would have been like to live through as a fan of either one. I would have been enraged. Can you imagine right, if that, that was happening in real know, time? And Steffi keeps winning, right? right? If that was happening in real time now on Twitter, it would be complete chaos. There would be a temptation to asterisk every single win, right? Because Monica wasn't there. And so in in our episode about Monica last year, we didn't talk a whole lot about what Steffi's response was. When she was asked about the stabbing, how did she respond? How did she feel? And she's a person who was very re- resistant to sharing her personal feelings. But of course, she was asked about this many times. She was quoted as saying, it was a really difficult time for me. It took me seven or eight months to get over it. It kind of felt I was the reason for it. All these tournaments, it was really hard for me because I didn't know what was happening. I got questions constantly and I felt he said he was my fan, so it's impossible not to feel guilty. If something like that happens, you cannot put it behind you. Although, of course, it wasn't her fault. No one benefited more from the removal of Monica from the game. Winning the next four slams... 10 of the next 15 slams, just absolutely dominating the 1990s. And we will never know how much of those wins, the second imperious phase of Steffi Graf's career, how many of those wins were due to her hard work, her being that much better than everybody else, and how much of it was due to Monica not being there. Right, just as how... You know, people say Monica's career was hurt by the stabbing. Obviously, Steffi's career, to a much lesser degree, was hurt by it as well because it, it called into question a lot of her achievements. And I think that is partly why it's so much easier for folks now to discredit and overlook her accomplishments mm-hmm. as great and vast and numerous as they were. When Monica started putting out feelers and expressing the interest to coming back to the tour. She was gone for a long time, over two years. Martina Navratilova, as we said, was a great friend to her and actually led the charge to restore Monica to number one when she came back to the tour. And although Monica roasted Steffi several times in public, 
Steffi insisted that Monica regain her number one ranking and be a co-number one with Steffi. And that's what happened at the 1995 U.S. Open, in which they played in the final. But Steffi said we should do anything possible for her. In that 1995 final, where Steffi beats Monica in three sets, some of the reaction to it is indignation that Steffi would dare be so happy, so visibly happy Mm -hmm. to win that match and to celebrate. And I remember watching that, that reaction, you know, recently, and feeling, oh God, feeling so uncomfortable that Steffi was happy at all about the victory. Mm -hmm. But what we have to leave space for is the fact that Steffi had so much going on in her own personal life. Set aside the fact that she was injured for large stretches of her career. That her winning that 1995 final coincided as well with going through a spate of injury. She won those 95 and 96 slams, those the six of them, not at her optimal physical best. Right. So let's catch up with the chronology here. Steffi has mainly an off year in 94. Going into Roland Garros in 95, she is not currently holding a Grand Slam title. For the first time in eight seasons. <laughs> Hard to understand. She goes on to win all six of the Grand Slams that she enters in 1995 and 1996. You know, in the midst of this, she's dealing with some serious foot, leg, and back injuries. Knee injuries. Knee injuries. She has a bone spur in her back that she was convinced was going to end her career that was that debilitating. And it's not like she lost the Australian Opens in 95 and 96, thus stopping her from getting another calendar year Grand Slam, or potentially back-to-back calendar year Grand Slams. She wasn't able to compete in them because she was injured. Mm -hmm. At the same time, of course, her father is going through a lot, very publicly. In 1995, he's charged and held in jail on tax evasion. Charges that he evaded taxes on almost $12 million of Steffi's money. He said that she had no involvement in the money management, but Steffi knew that she was going to be investigated, that there were suspicions on her as well. Because nobody filed tax returns for Stephanie Maria Groff between 1989 and 1993. Okay? That's a lot of money. The Graff family immediately paid it. The... You know, they were like, you need $12 million in liquid cash? We got it. We're going to pay you back. The Graff family paid that money back quickly. Millions of dollars in liquid cash that apparently they had, they paid back. But her father insisted that he completely left her out of the money management because he wanted her to concentrate on tennis, that she should not be implicated in this. But the state prosecutors did believe that she bore responsibility. Peter was held in prison throughout his trial. He was held for 15 months before a judge decided to grant him bail. So all of this is going on uh, in 95, when Steffi is winning slams, seemingly at will. No, not at will. Very traumatically for some of the fans of her opponents. (laughs) So during this time, the trial is going on. Peter is in jail for all these many months. He ends up serving 25 months in prison. All this is happening while... Steffi is being held accountable by many folks for what happened to Monica. She herself feels guilt about that. And then she also has career-threatening injuries that she's dealing with. It's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And it took quite a while for her to be legally exonerated. So there was actual legal suspicion on her 
throughout a lot of this legal ordeal with Peter and the German prosecutors. She's also not given the benefit of the doubt by her peers throughout her career. You get the impression that folks don't really take her injuries very seriously. She tells people that she has a career-threatening injury, but then she wins a bunch of slams in a row. There's a, a disconnect between what people are hearing and what they're seeing. Lindsay Davenport, who throughout her career had smoke for everybody. <laughs> Especially in the 90s. Oh my. Well, she had a lot to say. When she was asked about Steffi Graf in 1997, it was reported that Steffi was coming into the tournament carrying injuries. Steffi was going for a fourth slam in a row and seventh of the last nine. Davenport is quoted as saying, oh, come on, come on. Oh, no, stop it. She always goes out and plays just fine. I don't want to know what's bothering her now. But how could you not feel that way when she was carrying a 45-match win streak at slams? Agreed. It just contributes to this damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> yeah. Business for Steffi Graf. Yeah. Like she, it's a, it's a no-win situation in a lot of ways throughout her career. This is 1997, Australian Open, the first slam of the year. A few major things are going on. Steffi's father is on trial. The verdict is supposed to come down around the time of the Australian final. Steffi Graf loses in the fourth round. And this tournament ends up being a sea change in women's tennis, with Graf's loss to Kutzer, Arancha Sanchez-Vicario, Conchita Martinez, Anka Huber, all going out early in this tournament, and Martina Hingis, the next child prodigy who will take over tennis, wins her first slam. The rest of 97 sees Venus Williams reach a historic final, and, and truly the next generation of women's tennis not take over, but start to assert themselves, especially as Steffi declines. The period between 1993 and 1997, all folks can talk about, and Christine Brennan, chief among those, is how terrible the state of the women's game is. <laughs> how Monica's absence has left just a barren, like you said, Martina calling it Steffi and the Seven right. Dwarves. You'd think, I mean, I lived through it in real time. I thought it was pretty great. <laughs> I know, it, it's very unkind to people like Novotna Martinez and, Mary, Mary of course, Pierce, Mary Jo Fernandez was still Sanchez around. Vicario, who right. was one of, truly, one of the best players of the first few decades of the WTA. Yeah. There's no argument. You could make the argument that her career, more so than Steffi's, was aided by Monica's stabbing. That is something I will accept. Mm. But it's not like the tour was barren in the meantime. You got this rivalry that produced some of the greatest finals in women's tennis history during this time. But back to Steffi, she was dealing with a ton of injuries in 97-98, wins no slams, is still only in her late 20s. And we reach 1999, and she gets to the French Open final. Little did she know the, the fracas, the palaver that she was about to enter, but... <laughs> Beats the young Martina Hingis for the French Open crown, and it is her last Grand Slam. Reaches the final at Wimbledon, loses to Lindsay Davenport, and that's all she wrote. Shocks the world, really, by retiring so young. For her personally, she had had enough. She said she was going to play through the end of the year, and then she had to retire in a match and was like, why, why am I still doing this? Why am I still traveling to tournaments? I really do not want to do this. And that sense of clarity led her to be like, I'm out. 
for folks on the outside looking in, myself, I like to think that she saw the landscape and was like, I'm not dealing with this mess. <laughs> like I've, With Serena and Vita. I've had to deal with overcoming Chrissy and Martina at the start of my career, dealt with all comers throughout my career, and now this new generation is bubbling up and ready to burst through. And she just, she did not have the bandwidth at that time. <laughs> and we must respect that. We also didn't know that she was entertaining the admiration of Andre Agassi. No. And that when they first, or should I say when he first courted her, he was still technically married and she was seeing a German race car driver for a very long time. Yes, she was with but, him for a but, long time. Both relationships, parties involved knew it was on the, you know, it was reaching the other side of the mountain. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> the peak had long gone. Anyway. But that that is one of the greatest slams in tennis history. The 1999 French Open. Yes. So we'll, we will talk about that in a little bit. As far as iconic matches go. We talked about the WTA that Steffi found when she first started playing. How did she leave it? There's been some criticism contemporaneously with Steffi and Monica and after them that the pair of them failed to move the WTA in the right direction. So where was the WTA before they hit the scene? At that time, women's tennis was so grounded in activism. It was built from the ground up. Billie Jean King retired in the early 80s. Martina and Chrissy were that first generation that, that bore the fruit of what Billie Jean wanted to see of the WTA. But Martina and Chrissy were always campaigning for women's tennis, defending it, promoting the sport because the sport needed them for survival. And Steffi and Monica were of this generation, really the first generation where they could just exist, where the WTA was so grounded, where women's tennis, of course, was still criticized and was still in a precarious position, but they didn't have to be political figures. They didn't have to be activists. They didn't have to sell tickets in parking lots. It's all relative, right? Because on the grand scale of things, women's sport still was a second-class citizen to men's sport. Mm -hmm. But WTA players had the ability to make the most money and have the highest profiles of any women athletes in the world. And by the time Steffi and Monica are really off and running at the top of the WTA game, there's such a luxury, and perhaps it's unfair to them, it's a, it's a byproduct of happenstance of when they got their career started, but the Graphs had the luxury of Peter Graf in particular threatening the WTA by saying in 1987, well, you're going to change the way the ranking system is set up so that if... Steffi plays smaller tournaments, she could lose points. Well, I'm going to start my own women's tour. That is wild <laughs> to me. Not just a few years after, after the original nine, after they signed $1 contracts to get this tour on the road, literally, and off the floor. Peter Graf is here threatening, whether it was serious or not, even the most casual of threat to the existence of the WT Tour and the hard work that came before to have it exist is completely bonkers to me. Mm -hmm. 
Pam Shriver said at the time, I wonder what kind of pigeons they're going to get to play on that tour. <laughs> Always good for a quote. But you're right that Steffi was not maybe entirely... Without blame. There's this idea that she was put upon so much by her father, which then absolves her of blame. Right? Right. It shielded her. We talk about it as it shielded her from a lot of the stresses of off-the-court stuff. Well, Dad's going to handle that. Mm -hmm. And that was strategic by him and by her, right? They saw their relationship as symbiotic. And actually, I wasn't going to say that. Okay. (laughs) You're right. You're not wrong. But when I said she wasn't entirely, I, I was going to say she wasn't maybe deeply tied to the political will that spurred the formation of the WTA tour. Right, she maybe she didn't feel part and parcel of that. She joined the tour when she could just be a young woman playing tennis at at the highest level. Right. Well, you can make the argument that's all she ever wanted and was never able to achieve. Mm. And we know we know the WTA that Steffi left behind. We know that Martina was a dominant number one in the late nineties. We know that Martina Hingis. Yes, we know that. After Graf's retirement, the WTA saw what many people feel is its golden age. And to me, it's interesting to look back on this dominant legendary athlete and say her retirement possibly spurred or coincided with the greatest era in her sport. The, the, the growth and the flourishing of the Williams sisters, Capriati, Martina Hingis, Lindsay Davenport, and later the Belgians, Amelie Moresmo, the Serbians... This is the work and the legacy of so many players, not just Steffi. Mm-hmm. I mean, Richard Williams famously said that he saw Ruzici win, what, $40,000. and was like, well, I'm going to get my daughters into tennis. Check tennis today. That stems directly from Martina Navratilova. Mm-hmm. And you can make the argument that the fact that the, the sport is such a global sport, Steffi had a lot more to do with that, with her success. Right. Because there's an ungenerous view which is kind of the so what view, which is, wow, Steffi was incredible. She won everything. So what? <laughs> because the sport flourished without her after she retired. And that the gains that people have today don't really, aren't really tied to anything that she did specifically. Mm-hmm. I think this plays into why it's easier to forget her achievements. Right. Yes, it's her demeanor. It's her, I just want to play tennis. I'm I'm not about all this other stuff. But it's also... The timing of her career. And so much of that is like you you just alluded to her personality. She was seen as aloof. She is very shy. We know that. She's intensely private. She's in many ways disappeared from the public eye, despite being married to such a flamboyant, media-friendly figure in Andre Agassi. She doesn't really come to majors and make appearances. She doesn't do commentary. And so she has a, been able to reseed from tennis fans' consciousness in a lot of ways. But you can see echoes of Steffi in modern players. Of course, in in their style, which I think I didn't fully understand before I did a lot of this reading, in the way that she changed the aggressive baseline game. But also, Steffi, of course, was not perfect, but that relentless pursuit of perfection in her game, you can see echoes of that in Serena Williams, in someone who is so consumed with hitting every shot perfectly. The Williams sisters will tell you that it was Monica Sellis. Yep. But, but can, they you, grew up... can you untether the two? 
Exactly. I mean, they grew up watching Stuffy and Monica. You can see it in Roger Federer more than anyone, I think, in, in the modern age. Let's move into some of the, the rivalries, some of her head-to-head matchups against her peers throughout her career. The player who had the most wins against Steffi Graf in their career was Gabriela Sabatini, somebody who is, in my view, lost to tennis history, and for whom I don't think folks understand just how much was expected of her and how prodigious her talent was. Absolutely underachieved, potentially uh, a byproduct of the era that she played in, having to come up against Navratilova and then have Steffi just go on this otherworldly run at the start of her career. She was outshunned in a lot of ways. But the, the head-to-head was 29 and 11. Steffi played her more than anybody else in her career 40 times. They also won five WTA titles together in doubles, including the 1988 Wimbledon, and a further three runner-up finishes at Roland Garros. Sabatini, to her credit, was able to beat Graf once in a Grand Slam final for her only slam title at the 1990 US Open, in straight sets, no less. We can use Sabatini and this head-to-head to further illustrate what we're talking about with the Salas graf rivalry and why it's foolhardy to make wide-sweeping judgments as to what the head-to-head would have looked like had it not been for the stabbing in 1993. At the start of their careers, Steffi won their first 10 matches. In the middle of it, Sabatini was 8-4. and four. She had done some figuring out, clearly, at this point. And at the end of their careers, Steffi won the last eight meetings. Mm-hmm. What really surprised me, though, is that Sabatini won five times in a row between the 1990 Virginia Slims Championships and 1991 Amelia Island. Against Navratilova, Steffi was 9-9. Nine and nine. You could argue that her most competitive rivalry was against a champion of a previous generation. Against Arancho, 28-8. and eight. One of the greats of the first three decades of the WTA Tour. That's your note. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But Arancha did beat Steffi four times in important matches at majors. The 1989 Roland Garros final, the 1991 French Open semifinal, the 1992 US Open quarterfinal, and the 94 US Open final. She was 8-6 and six against Chrissy Everett, 29-4 and four against Novotna, 13 and 1 versus Martinez. Mary Jo Fernandez never beat her. 17 wins. 21 and 0 against Natalie Toziat. 7 and 2 versus Martina Hingis. And 12 and 2 versus Zena Garrison. When we attempted to to look at Steffi's iconic matches, it was almost too ambitious. It was intimidating, right? Because her career is so vast. She won 22 slam singles titles. It's like, where do you start? I think you start with the 1985 US Open quarterfinal versus Pam Shriver. Three tiebreak sets, and Pam Shriver came out of that saying, I could not have played any better, and I still lost to this 15-year-old girl. Well, she didn't say all that, but that was that was a net effect, right? Mm. Pam saying, I played my very best. Like, I left it all out there. But this 15-year-old girl still able to get the job done. This is, this is, these are the early signs where folks can see that greatness is upon them. 
I maintain that I don't think Pam gets enough credit for her playing career. I mm. think her playing career has been largely overshadowed by her extensive commentary career. No, it's, I mean, it's absolutely true. Pam is a Grand Slam runner-up. She's won a million Slam doubles titles and was a perennial mm-hmm. p- top player for many years. Well, that's the thing, right? Even if she is remembered for her playing career, it's not just that she was a, a an incredible doubles player, but then also kind of second fiddle to Martina as well. Right. You mentioned the 1987 French Open final, which is her first Slam title. Steffi beat Martina coming back from 3-5 down in that third set. Fun fact, this was also Arancha's first Grand Slam tournament, her Slam debut. She reached the quarterfinals and lost to Gabriela Sabatini. And two years later, won the title herself. The 1989 French Open final, which probably the first big upset of Steffi's career. As long as Steffi Graf is talked about, her 1988 French Open final will always be mentioned, where she completely blitzed Natasha Zvereva in the final 6-love, six 6-love, six in under 40 minutes. It was echoed this year by Iga Sviantek's dominant run at the French Open, but not equaled. Echoed, but not equaled. It was the most dominant run to a final in Slam history since they started the 12800 player draw. She's also known for the 1993 Wimbledon final for the complete antithesis of excellence. And that's not well, a... Can you please explain? <laughs> In that you think of an iconic match and it's it's usually like, wow, they rallied from 1-3 down in the fifth set and played brilliant tennis. But this was a slam gifted to her by the late Yana Navarro. Uh, uh. And it breaks my heart to even mention it on this show. I'm so glad, forever glad, that Yana was able to finally win Wimbledon in 1998 and exercise those demons because back in the 90s when whenever you'd have rain delays and there were no roofs they would always come back to this match and it was just so mean-spirited and Steffi herself Mm -hmm. after this match said listen I played like crap this entire match and you know we've all done we've all choked we've all had matches that we let slip through our grasp that we should have won and unfortunate for Yana this was it you know it Mm. was it was not cute the opposite of that though was the 95 Wimbledon final where Graf beat Sanchez Vicario you mentioned that they had this great rivalry going in that 94-96 stretch Sanchez had beaten Graf at the previous U.S. Open Steffi struck back at Roland Garros and we're at Wimbledon 95 Arantxa's least favorite surface (laughs) third set Five all. Listen, I know that this is... 13 deuces. I know that this is one of the great games in tennis history. I mm. cannot rewatch You'd, it. I know you don't want to relive it, but... We did a lot of rewatching I mean, of tennis for this episode. I could not relive that. 25 years later, I'm still not ready for it's that. It's just... It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, Arancha is doing everything. She is throwing everything possible at Steffi, and somehow she is weathering the storm. It's mesmerizing to watch this match. Uh, yes. Okay, moving on. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> to the one I know you want to talk about. To the 99 French Open final, which is famous for the highest drama in women's tennis that you can find. 
But there's so much historical context to this match. Martina Hingis has been number one for a long time. She's trying to win this elusive French Open title. She can secure the Grand Slam by beating this old lady, Steffi Graf, who's been a non-entity for 97-98. The entire tournament as well. How is Steffi going to hold up? On the men's side, Andre Agassi can also secure a career Grand Slam if he wins his final against Medvedev. Little did we know that these two would go on to get married. (laughs) So imagine, at one tournament, two players can secure a career Grand Slam, their place in history. Andre is also trying to do the the big comeback. This will be his crowning moment of his comeback. Uh, You know, spoiler alert, Andre did it. (laughs) <laughs> he achieved his career slam here at the French Open, uh, w- which was unlikely, but he did it. Martina Hingis did not. She retired without a Roland Garros title. I recall this match being a lot more lopsided initially mm-hmm. through the first set and a half. And having gone back and watched the full 30-minute highlight package, this was a high-quality intense match, even though Martina was up a set and a brick. Mm-hmm. Human memory is very flawed. It's very bad. Even if I know what happened in this match, I still think that, oh, when Martina crossed the net, that ended everything for her. Not necessarily. No, like, she, she broke back in that second right. set. The first set was very competitive. Martina wins. She's up a break very early in the second set, and she disagrees with the line call. Won't let it go. She's up a set in a break and decides to cross the net onto Graf's side. John McEnroe, of all people, the level-headed John McEnroe says, Oh no, don't do that. (laughs) He thought it would result in an automatic default. It was a code violation, but it certainly turned the French crowd against her. And they didn't need any incentive because the French crowd loves underdogs and Steffi was the underdog in this match. But... After this whole drama, Martina does go up 3-1. She's still in a winning position. She does eventually lose the second set and appears mentally and physically exhausted. Chrissy Everett was not exactly generous. Even in the first set, she was saying, Martina's hitting too many drop shots. She's lazy. I think the context for this match is more important than anything that actually happened Mm. on the court for Martina. This was a site of... The slam that she let slip through her grasp in 1997. While she didn't know it at the time, it's the one that was missing from her calendar from her calendar year Grand Slam. At the peak of her powers, losing to Eva Maioli in that French Open final in straight sets. Like that is, you look back at the history of tennis and that one jumps out. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how close she was. You can win easily on hard courts. You can slice and dice your way, do everything, play the entirety of the all-court game on grass. But the surface that probably suits you better than most is the one that gives you the most trouble. It must have been infuriating for Martina Hingis Mm. to have not won this tournament. And then in 1998, you come up against Monica Seles in the semifinals and you're expected to just waltz into the final and Monica blitzes you in that semifinal. This the, the French Open, those three years were fraught AF for <laughs> Martina Hingis. Yeah. And so that's what you see play out in this final. It's incredible frustration. She loses to Monaco, champion of yore in 1998. And here comes Steffi now, another relic, who she's supposed to just brush aside because she is 
the young genius who has every trick in the book, every shot, can play a carefree brand of tennis that we haven't seen before at such a young age. She is the prototypical prodigy. Because this is a stuffy episode, I don't want to overemphasize Martina Hingis in this match, but when we get to the third set, Hingis is clearly physically and mentally, more so mentally, not there. Mm-hmm. And she gets outcrafted. The ninja, the genius of courtcraft, gets outcrafted by Steffi Graf, who's supposed to be over the hill. Steffi thinks through this match in such a beautiful way. Like, to go back and watch it, ignore the drama. You can see a champion who has 21 slams at that point, who's old, who's injured. Old at that time well, for a tennis right, player. Not old, younger than me, currently. Much <laughs> younger than you. <laughs> but you can see this woman outthink the supposed greatest thinker in tennis. She changes her approach. She becomes much more aggressive. This is where the, the narrative of the German precision does Steffi a disservice. Because it's not just doing the work on the court. It's about the cerebral aspects of it. It's about changing tactics. It's considering and confronting your own tennis mortality and then being able to do all this in the moment against this person who is now the top dog in tennis. So go back and watch this match, not only for the unsurpassed spectacle, but also the very entertaining and smart tennis from both players. Mm -hmm. The drama is what will cast the biggest shadow over this match but it was actually really good tennis. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the the post-tennis life of Steffi Graf because she has existed really outside of our, our purview. She's popped up to do exhibitions every few years. She played against Kim Clijsters in 2009 at Wimbledon when Kim was making her first comeback. She played against Martina Hingis, I think, in 2012 in Taiwan. She lost both those singles matchups, but you can find the videos on YouTube and they were still pretty competitive. I look back now, having lived through the 21 years since Steffi's retirement, and I'm more convinced than I ever was. And I don't think I was very convinced much at the start, but I'm most convinced now that her game would have translated into the modern, the most modern era of women's tennis. Because mm-hmm. she was still giving these women hell as a 40-year-old. <laughs> We have no interest in in goat debates, in comparing Steffi to previous or successive generations of women tennis. This episode was a way for us to better understand her career in the context of her career. Mm-hmm. Outside of comparing her to Serena, to Margaret Court, to to all these people that she never or rarely played, to understand. Not not who Steffi is, because she gave us so little, but to understand what her career meant and the brand of tennis that she played. To understand how Steffi was the Steffi that we saw. To give her her flowers. To have an understanding or gain some sympathy for the things that she would have gone through. What were the challenges that she experienced in her career? It's not one of those exercises where... We're here to hold people entirely to the fire. You know, it's not <laughs> right. It's not a hard-hitting 2020 Barbara Walters interview. <laughs> it's about trying to understand our tennis history a little bit better and and challenge some of the things that we 
thought were previously intractable. But yeah, 22 Grand Slam titles, $22 million in prize money, that doesn't add up. When Boris Becker won six and made more than her in prize money, the discrepancy in the way that women athletes are paid is better now, clearly. Ooh, it's but so much a, better now. This but... is a big example of how bad it was back then. It's sad. It's very sad. We have come far. We still have far to go. Thanks for joining us for Season 7 opener. We hope that this will serve as a, a nice companion piece to our Season 6 opener, which is about Monica Sellers. It felt kind of... The, it, it was a, the seamless thing to do, mm, I think. It's the second annual. It's it's complimentary, but it's in no way in competition, you know, because we don't no. want to don't want to inflame the fan wars of the early 1990s. And again, we will not be getting into it as to who is better. I mean, like, <laughs> seriously, you could type, Steffi Graf looked at the sky and said it was blue. And somebody will respond, well, Monica Sass was outside six days last week, and it was sunny six days last week. <laughs> like, it is wild. Yeah. Like, the moment you mention one of their names, like, the, the fire, and in some cases, the vitriol that is engendered in people mm. with these two it's it's frankly a little bit scary so i mm. i abstain thank you for listening to one of our deep dives in the history of tennis i hope you found some of it educational interesting illuminating uh, this is the body serve we're beginning our seventh season as the tennis podcast you can find us on spotify apple podcasts overcast on podbean.com over the rainbow under the sun. We're at Twitter, at the Body Serve, and on Instagram at the same. I am James, at Elliot JMR. You are? I am Jonathan, and I am on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. Thanks for listening. Till next time.